He goes on that same trip, but this time he takes more people. They stay in nicer places. They stay a lot longer, and they enjoy themselves. And that, for him, was his way of getting justice. He made up for what he lost, and all I did was provide him a check because I I can't make it right. But the big issue in today's environment, people think justice, fairness, and equality are all exactly the same word, and they are not. If you think of an Olympic race, you want an equal start, a fair race, and a just result. Welcome to this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler. Hey, what's the difference between a good lawyer and a bad lawyer? Well, a bad lawyer can let a case drag out for several years. A good lawyer can make it last even longer. Hey, a man phones a lawyer and asks, how much would you charge for just answering three simple questions? The lawyer replies, $1,000. $1,000, exclaims the man. That's very expensive, isn't it? It certainly is, says the lawyer. Now, what's your third question? (laughs) Oh, my goodness, those lawyer jokes, they just mount and mount, right? Well, today we have a lawyer that's here, and he's nothing to joke about. He's a dear friend of mine. David Pill, attorney, welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. Thank you very much. You hear those all the time, right? You probably know a few yourself. I've told quite a few. (laughs) What's the funniest one you've told lately? I mean, the ones to me that they talk about is, you know, that they use lawyers instead of lab rats now because they can't get the lab rats to do all the stuff that a lawyer will do. There's quite a few more lawyers than there are rats. They multiply faster. And then finally, (laughs) and maybe most importantly, is that the laboratory personnel get less attached to the lawyers than they do the cute little rats. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, you can joke about lawyers, but there's times when you really need a lawyer. You need a good lawyer. That's true. We always joke that there's only 98% of the lawyers that give 2% of us the bad name. <laughs> That's so. right. Well, you have been serving close to 25 years. Yeah. I mean, yeah, really. 25 years. 25 years now. Is it hard to believe when you were a young legal student? I've noticed about a few years ago that several years before I stopped being referred to as that young lawyer in this club or this young lawyer who won this award or this young lawyer who got this verdict. Then it suddenly just became this lawyer. (laughs) The young just kind of went away. People haven't mentioned that much in the last 10 or 12 years. You and your wife, Trish, have celebrated another mile marker in your marriage, haven't you? Yeah, we've, we've been married over 25 years, and we're able to take a big trip, fortunately, before the whole COVID thing broke out. You know, I wanted us to get together when you returned, just to talk about those travels, and, and maybe one day we can do that, because I'd like to have Trish in here and get her perspective as a couple planning a trip like that. But you literally took a – I watched the different places you went – Was it around the world? It was an around the world trip, and Trish had no idea where we were going from one stop to the next. Everything was a surprise. Everything was a surprise. She knew how to dress, and she knew how long we were going to be gone. And she knew we were heading west, because that's what I do. Other than that, was in, one more thing was we were never going to go to a place we'd been before. All the places were going to be new. And so at each airport, she discovered for the first time where the next stop was. Was there any place along those travels, once you discovered where she was going, that she didn't want to go? No. She's she's a great sport. I mean, obviously, she settled for me, so that's a, that tells you that. No, she loved all the places, and they were all different and had their own positives and negatives. But uh, our favorite probably was the island of Santorini, which is in the Aegean Sea south of Greece. It's where you see those iconic pictures of the white churches with the blue round rooftops right it's like every calendar and screensaver has that shot and we now have that shot i've seen it's an astonishing place it's beautiful 
What are some of the things that you learned about your relationship with one another, about your relationship to our Heavenly Father as you made those travels? What we found was, among other things, was that it is not just a cliche to say we are best friends. We literally just enjoy being together, even if we're doing nothing, let alone doing other things. But one of the things that I really appreciate about her is the trust that she has in me. It's emblematic of the trust we need to have in God. So as an example on Santorini, one of the first things I did was rent the biggest four-wheeler I could find, and she's all for it. She jumps on the back, and we drive, and I think we put, I don't know, it seemed like we put 30 miles running around an island on that four-wheeler driving full out the whole time because I drive four-wheelers all the time, and she's fine with that, but she trusted me. I think relationships, especially among spouses, my wife and I, Pam, were about to celebrate 37 years of marriage. Congratulations. Thank you. And God is so good. He gave me a beautiful bride. And the longer we've been married, the more in love I am with her. I just thank God. I was reading in uh, Genesis just the other day, reflecting back on the creation of man and woman and the design that God made and the marriage covenant, David, that God has for couples. Right. Well, and Dr. Rogers said it really well when he said, you know, he didn't make you the same or one of you would be unnecessary. He made you different to make you one. Something else I never picked up on. It's funny how you read scripture and then you read it again. You go, well, I didn't realize mm-hmm. that. When God created man, I always assumed that he was in the Garden of Eden. But he created man and then made the Garden of Eden to put man in the Garden of Eden. Right. Yeah. Adam was made outside the garden. Eve was made inside the garden. Yes. And ever since then, I'd rather be outside in the garage <laughs> and my wife would rather be in the home. It could be the same. I don't know. I don't want to read into too much. You don't want to read into too much, yeah. But it's interesting when you look at things, That's especially right. when you read Scripture for years, mm-hmm. and then you go back again and say, I never really noticed that. Yeah, I did a talk on a mission trip about the gospel according to Genesis and did the entire talk out of Genesis 3.15 where it predicts the virgin birth, it predicts, you know, it's the proto-evangel, it it predicts the entire gospel and tells the whole gospel, bruising the heel, crushing the head, that's how you kill a snake, I'm a country boy, that's how we kill snakes, we don't shoot them in the tail. Crucifixion, the resurrection, it's all right there, including the virgin birth because her seed, she didn't have seed. She was given a seed by the Holy Spirit. You really like to dive into Scripture. You really like to – do you teach a Bible study? I don't right now, but I have for years over the years. I did one at Bellevue for about nine years, and I've taught a lot of the Wednesday night classes and run some small groups and done some mission work. I mean, one of the things that I'll share with you that I ran across that has blessed me, the way you're talking about where it's something you're super familiar with, but then you see something. So I've just completed my first novel, and it's about – if the Ark of the Covenant was found right now in modern day. And, of course, it's got an action-adventure side to it. So it's, you know, Indiana Jones meets Die Hard. Anyway, the studying about the Ark opened up things that I wouldn't have related. So, for instance, you know how when they're at the tomb and there were two angels at the tomb and then one of them said something. Some people bring that up as a contradiction because they don't know logic and they don't understand contradiction means to speak against. And they think that saying the angel at the tomb said something to me, and there were two angels there. They think that's a contradiction. 
And, of course, I used to be an atheist, so I would have bought that back then. But at any rate, obviously, that's not true. If I tell you the guy at Lowe's told me how to lay tile, you're not assuming that was the only person at Lowe's. Although with the labor shortage, maybe it is. Uh, but, uh, but what happened that was interesting to me was I questioned, why did it give me the location of those two angels? It said one is at the head and one is at the feet, sitting on the stone where Christ had been laying. Assuming that's a blood-covered stone like you would expect as he, as the body sat there and wept, it's blood out. It occurred to me, wait, that's the top of the ark. You've got an angel at one side, an angel yes. on the other, and between yep. the wings of the angels is where the presence of God rested over wow. the blood-covered mercy seat, which was over the stone, which was the law of death that was inside the ark. Oh, and I'm yes. like, oh, it's right there. That's why they told us. You say that. Easter Sunday, my pastor shared that very same th- – I've never heard anybody talk yeah. about that, comparing the two. Mm-hmm. And the whole sermon was the Ark of the Covenant cool, and its relation to Christ and the cross and the sacrifice he made, and I, he made that same observation you did. That's, that's cool. I, and, and certainly I don't claim any originality no, really, in it. But it occurred to me last year while I was researching that novel. It really just spoke to me. David, how do we keep Scripture from being just academic? You know, there's so many Bible studies that we're saying, you know, if you're going to a Bible study, you know, or you're reading your Bible every day, and you're taking in a lot of knowledge. What's the balance between, for you, I mean, I know you're not a seminary professor, but just in your own observations of the Christian walk. Right. Right. Well, I mean, that's kind of illustrated between, like, the difference that my wife and I bring to it when we do Bible studies, and she tends to look at things in the more relational way and all that, and I tend to look at things in more the factual way and what's the symbology in it and so forth. And all of that's okay because we're all members of the same body. But for me, I always want to be challenged. I don't necessarily have to even agree with what I'm hearing for me to be challenged. Right now I'm doing a study on the fact that the Scripture is written in a culture, a collectivist culture, that is based in shame and honor. And we read it as an individual based on right and wrong. So as a result, we find sometimes people try to make right and wrong dichotomy, you know, splitting it down the middle, decisions where there's something like a parable or something. It's more of a balanced scenario. So David and Bathsheba is an example. We're all familiar with that story. But if you look at it from an honor-shame standpoint, David had the power to do everything he did. He was the king. He had the power of life and death. But, but, and he gave himself a way out by sending Uriah to go sleep with his wife. And had that happened, everybody still knew what happened, but there was a, the honor would be regained and there'd be no shame to him. And Uriah would not allow it to happen. He knew the deal, clearly, because he was not going to allow that to happen. And as a result... He was killed, and other Israelite soldiers were killed, too. It's easy to miss that. But he did break the covenant of God doing that. I David mean, did, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Right. David did. And not only did Uriah die, but all these other people died. And then, of course, there was a curse brought on his household. But what's really interesting is when David says, against God and God only I have sinned, in one sense that's true because he was totally legal in what he did by being a king. He owned you. But he was totally out of the covenant, as we talked about, with being not where he's supposed to be, 
not doing what he's supposed to be doing and then having people killed. So it was against God and God only that he had sinned. And then he talked about how he's sinful from birth. So it was an amazing scenario when Nathan, the outsider, brought shame to him. He saw that, and he had dishonored the Lord. And so that's the reason that I think you see so much about honoring in Psalms is we don't come from a shame and dishonor and honor culture. That's more uh, what we see in the Far East. I think it does give a little bit of depth to what we're reading. And so as a result of that, what I, the answer to the question is, I want to go deeper and wider in my understanding of Scripture, and I want to understand it like someone who was sitting there hearing it read yes. from a scroll. Well, it's interesting you say that because years ago I sat down on this program with Dr. John MacArthur, you know, the teacher on Grace to You, and, and I asked him that same question, that mm-hmm. he studied the Bible devotionally. He said, absolutely not. His response was, the deeper I go, the more I understand the depth of the Scripture and the reference of in the context, you know, and like you said, this honor-shame thing understands those mm-hmm. type of principles, then his devotion to God is even greater, right? you know? Right. Well, so I don't want to – I guess the balance here, I understand what you're saying, but the academic part of just having head knowledge and facts – that cannot replace our relationship with Jesus Christ. Oh, no. No, it can't. And it shouldn't. It shouldn't. I mean, it's not a textbook. But where it speaks of, of history and where it speaks of science and all it's accurate, but it's not primarily a history or a science book. It's primarily a love letter telling us that we are a part of a love gift that God is giving to his son, a people who have chosen him from the world and that are coming to him in repentance and faith. And I, and I can't say more about the Bible than what Dr. Rogers said. I always quote Dr. Rogers and see, I was baptized there, and he dedicated all my children, you know. But uh, he said that the Bible is like a pool of water that is so shallow that even the smallest little child can come and safely get a drink, but so deep that the scholars could jump in, swim all their lives, to the bottom and never touch bottom. And that's the idea behind Scripture. It is different from every other book. Isn't that beautiful? It really is. Well, I know you're from Arkansas originally. You grew up there. I don't know if we ever talked about what area of Arkansas you grew up. Right. So I was actually born in Memphis, and and my family goes back for the Peels and the Griffins. They go back to the 1840s in this area. But My dad was a psychologist, and so he wound up, by the time I was five, we'd done some fellowships and stuff, and I settled in El Dorado, Arkansas, which is 17 miles in Louisiana, southern Arkansas, or L.A. as we called it, lower Arkansas. And then I went to school at the University of Arkansas Fayetteville, Go Hawks, and that was my undergraduate, got out of there a little early, and then wound up back here in Memphis and wound up going to law school here. Did you always want to be a lawyer? No. It never even occurred to me till I was out of college. Uh, all through college, and and I did it, I was uh, working in marketing, and I ran an in-house advertising uh, agency for an optical firm. I had only thought about doing that. That's all I ever thought. I saw a movie called The Secret of My Success, a movie called uh, Nothing in Common with Tom Hanks and Jackie Gleason, and I loved what Tom Hanks did in that movie. And I remember, I think it was even in ninth grade, I did a career day thing on that's what I wanted to do. And I did that successfully. Won some Addies, and I mean, at 20 years old. (laughs) Really? Yeah. So I was really doing well. But then I came to the end of it fairly quickly and decided that wasn't it. But it's interesting because God never wastes a tear. He also never wastes 
something that you learn, in my opinion. What happens is, what am I doing? I'm writing copy and speaking to persuade people, right? At one point, I was doing that for just a mere commercial interest, right, to persuade you to use our services and position us in the market. Now, I write in briefs and motions, and I argue passionately, I hope, for my clients to achieve justice, not more than they should get, but not less either, because less is still not justice, to get them what they need and to help them with things. So I'm actually still doing a lot of the same things. I almost wonder sometimes if we look at jobs as in a dichotomy that we apply, because day in, day out, probably with what I do, my job might be more similar to a lot of other jobs that don't sound like lawyers because you're not in court every day. I mean, that, yeah. you, they're, they're making it so that when you try a case, you're trying a case they've selected to try. The good cases, they're going to settle at some point, especially when you get them ready. The cases that they're going to try are the ones where there's a chance that if things fall the wrong way, you're not going to get anything or you're going to get very little. And those are the ones they can take. They can risk gambling yeah, on. Yeah. You used a word that gets used a lot in today's culture, the word justice. Mm-hmm. It has a varying meaning to a lot of different people. Right. What is justice? Well, justice to me is kind of goes back to the old idea of what my dad would have said, you make it right. Now, the thing is, we're limited in how we can do that. So if I break your window playing baseball, I can make that right, okay? I can replace a pane of glass. If I bump your car in a parking lot while you're sitting up here doing a recording, I can fix your car, and I can make that right. Where we get into more trouble is where we try to figure out how to make it right when we've taken someone's time, when we've inflicted pain upon them. Not on purpose, but we've done it. And we've removed their regular life from them and replaced it with a life that is maybe dependent upon others for a while, maybe for a long time. So as an example, if and I've told juries, if you can give us back time, if you can give us back pain-free days, if you can allow this person to work without having to wear this brace, please do it. But if you don't have that magic wand, if you can't, then the only option we have is to ask for means for the person who is has been wronged to actually figure out for themselves how best to make it right. So as an example, I represented a pastor one time who was injured badly in an accident. He previously had wanted to go on a trip. You know how hard it is for pastors to travel. It's hard to get the time off, to get all the money lined up, to get everything worked out. And he had everything set up. Well, he couldn't go on the trip because of the injury. So later, after... A year and a half later or whatever, when the case finally resolves, he goes on that same trip, but this time he takes more people. They stay in nicer places. They stay a lot longer, and they enjoy themselves, and that for him was his way of getting justice. He made up for what he lost, and all I did was provide him a check because I can't right. make it right. But the big issue in today's environment, people think justice, fairness, and equality are all exactly the same word, and they are not. If you think of an Olympic race, you want an equal start, a fair race, and a just result. That's a great analogy there, David. It really is. And I was looking over some of the cases that you've been involved with. A dump truck caused death, a car accident resolution, nursing home injuries, medical malpractice, car wreck with neck injuries, pedestrian struck by a car, parking lot injury, workplace back injury, daycare injury. Just to pick up on the nursing home injury, especially in light of what we've seen in this past year with COVID, breaks your heart to think about a lot of the separation 
that people have had to die lonely deaths without loved ones around. It's terrible. It's terrible. I mean, the worst thing that can happen to you in a prison is to be put in solitary confinement. And as a result of this and the response to it, you had some of our elders who we are to honor put in effectively solitary confinement, and a lot of them died in that. It is horrible because it's not the family's fault. We have trouble assigning blame in this scenario, but the issue is we can all acknowledge the horror of that. And I think down the road there will be major scandals that come back as a result of this time we live through. I'm kind of tired of living through historical events, but I think we've lived through a historical event. Is there any unique legal things you're seeing happening, starting to stir as a result of this pandemic? Well, one of the things that a lot of people were afraid of was uh, liability if they expose somebody to COVID. So, for instance, a workplace would tend to just say, we're just going to, everybody's going to work from home because we don't want to have anybody claim this as workers' comp or that we made you come in here and get exposed. But what that ignores is it's very difficult to prove causation. Causation is not technically a word, but we use it almost every day at our law firm. Causation is the link between what happened and how it happened, and it's the idea of being proximate, being close enough. It's very difficult to prove how you could ever gotten a virus and to prove how that could have happened. Now, maybe an exception would be like a cruise ship. If you're on a cruise ship for 14 days and it breaks out and everybody gets it, they probably own that problem. But, of course, cruise ship liability, as you might know, is based out of Miami, and they're all foreign entities, and so they're very limited on what they have to pay. But the point being... You're not like that. So if you come to WCRV to work for a day, and then you go to Lowe's and pick up something, and then you go to Chick-fil-A and get some of the Lord's chicken and go on do your day, you don't know where you got exposed if later on you turn out right, sick. Right. So I think a lot of people were worried about liability in a way that wasn't realistic because they just had never thought through the causation part. So in that scenario, I think a lot of people were relieved. But on the other side, what I think you're seeing right now is a real realization that we can do a lot of legal work from Zoom and on phone calls. You may be surprised, most people are, that in Shelby County, when you used to have a day where you went down and did a setting status conference or whatever they want to call it, a docket call, everybody calls it different, but a docket call, you had sometimes 70 lawyers sitting in a room waiting on a person to read out a case then you'd say i'm ready or temporarily ready if the other person's not there and then they'd come back around to you an hour later and then you'd stand up and say yeah in the case of peel versus bmi or whatever are y'all ready yeah we're ready for a trial setting or here's a report to the court on where we're at and discovery or whatever Mm -hmm. we're doing and it's public and it's a waste of everybody's time and there's lawyers in there that are billing three and four hundred dollars an hour some of them it's crazy you know i I work on contingency so i only get paid if my client does so i don't have to worry about that and my clients don't have to worry about that they never receive a bill but my point is it's a totally bad way to do it now there's a zoom call and you tune in at 945 you and two other cases are set at 945 you have that discussion and you're back and you're from home or you're at the office or you're driving to a deposition or whatever you're doing it's so much better so i guess I would say one of the big things I'm seeing is all those meetings that could have been an email are now an email. (laughs) (laughs) So there are some 
perks, if you will, in light of that? I think so. I think working from home is going to be more of a norm. You're going to see a lot of blank commercial space because people have realized, I mean, it's always been a falsity that everybody's job takes 40 hours a week. Really? Everybody's? Every week? (laughs) Every week. 50 weeks out of the year? Everybody? Really? Yeah. No, that's not true. (laughs) It's not true at all. So there's going to be a a change in it. I really like arguing motions with the judge on Zoom because he's sitting there like you and I are sitting here face-to-face. And I can see his or her expression as I'm making my arguments. And I may have four good arguments. That judge may be very anxious to get to number three. Well, you know what? That's the one I need to talk about. (laughs) And I can tell that by the way he or she's reacting. Where I can't necessarily see that 18 feet away when he's up on a bench or a dais. I can't necessarily see that. So I really like the face-to-face. <laughs> Proud to say I've won all but one motion the whole time that the, <laughs> that the deals happened. And the one that, I, one that I lost, thankfully, we won in the other division and still wound up getting a settlement of limits for the client. So, David, I know that you are passionate about helping people who yeah. are in some of life's big challenges. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned a list of some people who you've helped in these cases we appreciate you sharing your services here on Bot Radio Network, have been for many years. Well, Bot Radio Network has, it changed my life. I was not raised in church. I got saved while I was in college at a fraternity house. When I moved to Memphis, I had never sat under a Sunday school class in my life. I had no background. I had never been to a BBS, didn't know what it stood for. My lack of church ease and Christian ease was epic. Now, I'm probably not the dullest knife in the drawer, so I picked up on some things from context, but I really needed to be taught, and God saw fit to put me in a position where I was in the car running to certain doctors for a job I had, so I spent eight or ten hours a day digesting 640 every day, and I could pick it up everywhere, all over West Tennessee and North Mississippi, just literally felt like I had a six-month seminary class. David, thank you for sharing that. And we like to hear those stories. I like to look at this radio station as an electronic seed spreader. (laughs) The Word of God is the seed, and it's Mm -hmm. being spread out in the hearts of people. That's what it's been doing now for 30, is it 34, 35 years now? We've been on the air here in the Memphis area, but thank you for that story. Well, we're going to have to say goodbye, but if we've perked somebody's interest to learn more about what you do to help people that are in an accident or other issues they might have, how can they contact you? Sure. Uh, the easiest is on the website at peellawfirm.com, P-E-E-L, lawfirm.com. There's blogs, there's articles, there's case histories. I've written a book about law a couple years back, and of course, I've got a, a novel coming out that's not about law, but those things will be linked at some point. I'm excited. If that turns out to be good, there can be sequels to it and hopefully be used in the service of the Lord. And what's that phone number? Oh, I'm sorry. 901-872-4229. Peel Law Firm. David Peel, thank you, my dear brother. Thank you for what you do for Christ's kingdom. Thanks for being a faithful partner with Bi Radio Network. Absolutely. Thank you, brother. Friends, that's all the time we have on this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. Thanks for stopping by. I'm Byron Tyler. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.